Every once in a while, we get to host a podcast that is not just professionally inspiring, but personally inspiring as well, and financially inspiring, not just to the people who have created something special, but those who benefit from it. And today on Dave and Darm Demystify, we have just such a podcast. Benjamin Fernandez, who is the brains and heart behind Nala, talks about how he has revolutionized payments in Tanzania, but, and to him more importantly, how he's changing lives and the inspiring message he gleaned from COVID-19 that is driving everything he's doing. Don't miss his insights from top to bottom. It's a fantastic episode. And here they are, Dave and Darm on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. Dave. Darm. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dar Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to today's show. And today we have joining us from Dar es Salaam, Benjamin Fernandez, who's the founder of Nala. Benjamin, would you mind giving us some background on yourself and what you've been up to? Then we can chat about Nala. Cool. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. Really excited to be here. Greetings from Dar es Salaam, the warm Dar es Salaam, Tanzania right now. This beautiful coastline over here, you'll have to come and take a swim sometime. Be booking hey. a plane before hey. you know it. So be careful what you <laughs> wish for. Hey, it's a beautiful coastline and it's open, so you're more than welcome also the land that is next to Zanzibar. So many people may have heard of Zanzibar. Zanzibar and Tanzania, same country. They formed a union many years ago. So that's where Tanzania comes from. So I'm Tanzanian. I grew up here. My last name is Fernandez, which is probably really confusing to many people listening right now. Because if you look at me, they're like, this guy looks Indian, got a Mexican last name and calls himself African. What's going on? So the Goans moved to Eastern Africa in the 1800s, primarily to build railways. And we're told when you finish building, you can leave or you can stay. And so my great grandparents decided to stay in East Africa. And so that's how we've been here for four generations. So I just call myself Tanzanian. There's no other home for me. So I grew up here. And then when I was 17, got the opportunity to go into scholarship to the United States. So I moved to America for a couple of years uh, for my undergraduate degree. And during that time, began a career in television. So I used to be a TV host on local TV, then moved to national TV during that time period. During that same time frame, you know, was getting involved in mobile payments. So mobile payments were starting to grow in Eastern Africa. Many people have heard of M-Pesa. And they had asked, how do we enable people to pay for a TV subscription through mobile money? It was a project that we got to work on. And that was what got me really interested in payments and payments across the African continent got me really curious about the problem, wondering what else could be done or how can we solve this at a way that's scalable. The joke I tell my friends is when you don't know what to do with life, you go to grad school. So if you're at that stage in your life right now, grad school is a great break. Um, Either you go to grad school or get into fintech, I think is the... (laughs) 
<laughs> Basically, exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's <laughs> a fun way to put it. So during that time period, similarly, I started applying to different schools. One of my friends said, you have to go to Stanford or Harvard or nowhere else. And I was like, man, look, no one in my family history has been to university, yet alone grad school. And so university itself was a big major step for myself and my family. And then now grad school is a big question that, you know, I don't know like, you know, much about it, right? And so because of this one professor advising me, like listen to those people who give you and plant seeds in your head here and there that make you think about them. I said, oh, why not? Let me just try. And so I tried and got a full scholarship and going to Stanford for my MBA. And that was where I think a lot of things started to change for me. I was definitely a fish out of the water. I didn't understand what VC was or PE. I thought PE was physical education. I was wondering why 20% of my class were physical education teachers. And uh, was a bit lost. I'll say that I was definitely a fish out of the water when it came to like a lot of things tech and Silicon Valley style. But it was definitely a place that was incredible where you sit around people who are really passionate about problems around the world. And I think it stimulates this energy within you to try to solve problems at scale in really unique ways. And so from there, I ended up working at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle. It was a nice job. We looked at, you know, different things across the digital innovations team, as well as financial services for the poor, which is where we looked at like national ID projects across many African countries, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, specifically. And yeah, from there kind of was really hungry into like trying to go back to the continent to figure out stuff, trying to build stuff in East Africa was my passion. And so I had a long conversation with my mom about moving back home. As an immigrant in the United States, when you look at your paycheck there versus the paycheck you were getting back in Africa, very, very different, many zeros different, I'll say that. But I really felt like this was the calling of what I wanted to do the next season of my life. And so decided to buy a one-way ticket home, and that's how we started Nala. You've got a purpose-led approach to you, which, you know, it's easy, like you say, to follow the paycheck, but follow a purpose is much more admirable. So hats off to you. What's Nala's proposition? What's it trying to solve? Cool. So I'm just going to add some context for East Africa and payments out here. It's massive. Mobile payments is huge in Africa. The GSMA estimates about $320 billion was transacted just within Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda in 2019. And that's on mobile payments. That's domestic payments that are happening on your mobile device. And so the way this works is your SIM card is basically your bank account. And the way you send money, so let's say you have cash with you you go to a small like agent shop and you hand them the cash and then you give them your phone number and you'll get a text message on your phone saying Darmesh you just added you know 10 bucks to your phone and you can use that and the way I would want to send David money is I dial in this long code onto my phone like a text message and I would send the message to David and the money's moved from my account to David's account once David receives the money if he'd like to take it out in cash he goes to find one of these tiny shops as well and he goes there, sends them the money and then he gets it cashed out to him. Even though mobile payments in Africa is massive, 95% of payments still happen in cash. So there isn't merchant networks built. Most of these payments are peer-to-peer payments that are dominant within the region. And so mobile payments is massive across the continent. It's probably, I think, dominant than any other region in the world, apart from maybe if you call China and see what they've done or India recently. But it's really incredible what's going on here in the region. So Nala, the first project we had built, 
I like to call them projects because they always start by curiosity. And so for the first two months, when I was back in Tanzania, interviewed 600 people across two months and then asked them similar questions, primarily around usage of their phone, like what they're typically using their devices for and, you know, big challenges they are facing. And so my first thesis was, why don't you enable an application-based service that sits on top of all these wallets, whether it's mobile banking or mobile money, enables you to access all of them without a data connection. And the secret sauce for us was we would automate in the background that text-based message that you would send. So if David's sending me money, he'd dial in 46 digits into his phone for a single transaction. And what we would do is automate that in the background of an application. So the user opens an app and they click who they want to send money to. And instead of dialing in all those digits in the background, we would dial that in for you. So it's like a hack on top of mobile money without any API access, essentially. And so that was what we built at first. We grew that business to about 250,000 customers in a year and like two months. Got into Y Combinator with that business. And essentially, that was like a big turning point for us in how we could grow that company. Can I just take you back to you interviewing 600 people. I mean, user research, design thinking is a massive passion for me. Mm. That's an awful lot of kind of research. So you had some thoughts, but not a kind of solution. You were going out to find the problem. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And there's lots of them, right? And so for me, you know, if somebody is at a stage of need finding, like trying to identify things, my suggestion is primarily two things. There's no shortcuts to user interviews at all. And I firmly believe that. There's no shortcuts to that is what I always believe. And there is insight you can find from doing those things. And the second thing is about the players who are experts in the industry. So what I would do is I'll split it up into two things. I'll definitely spend more of my time with the users, but then with the experts, what I'd ask them, I'd like cold email somebody who I thought was an expert in, let's say, a certain type of financial services, like let's say lending, credit management, you know, whatever it was. And I'd get on the phone, I'd ask them for their time and I'd ask them three to four questions. I'd say, what do you wish you knew when you started? Where do you think the industry is going? What are some of the biggest challenges? What advice do you have for me starting off today? And from that 30 minute conversation, I'd gain five years of insight given that person had been working in that space for such a long time. Then I try to write down like, okay, what are the key patterns that this person's identifying in this industry? Then when I'm going to my users, I would try to understand the problem that this person was talking about from a problem perspective. And I think that was where it tied together really strongly. And then that's where you can form a thesis because you'll start to see patterns. The kind of discipline of doing that and trying to find patterns, I think that's magic, isn't it? When you start seeing things emerging, that's where it gets really exciting. Yeah, so the way we did it was when I did a lot of interviews, we'd find emerging patterns and I'd adjust my questions. But the secret sauce is making sure you can force yourself not to ask a question that will lead to the answer you want. So like leading questions, right? And that is really tough to do. And you always have to like step back and fact check yourself like, okay, am I leading this person into this answer because I want to work on this project that is kind of exciting? Or am I actually understanding the problem in the sense that will be valuable for us to understand? And I think that's the hardest piece to do with when you're doing the user interviews. Yeah. I mean, look, it almost sounds simple, but nobody does it. You know, this is a really, this is a process which, you know, we would advocate, everybody who's in the sort of user experience industry would advocate, but it's very Mm -hmm. rarely done. And I love the ideas of very open conversations with people. So you're not going in with a specific agenda. 
and seeing what drops out of it. And that's what I mean in terms of magic, because once you get people talking, they love to tell you what they think. So it's fascinating to hear about you doing it. Mm and doing it very successfully. So going back to your first business, you've got to 250,000 subscribers, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got into Y Combinator. So for those who might not know what Y Combinator is, it's one of the most, I don't know if the word prestigious is right, but successful accelerator programs in the world. For example, in the class of 2009, you had Stripe, you had Airbnb, you have Dropbox as well, you have Coinbase. I think they had six IPOs in the last two years or something crazy like that. It's really impressive what Y Combinator companies have done. You just had a billion dollar valuation African company a few days ago, Flutterwave, and that's a five-year-old company, Max. And so seeing what YC's done is incredible. Fun fact, it's harder to get into Y Combinator than it is to get into Stanford and Harvard put together. So (laughs) Y Combinator's acceptance rate is about 1.2%. Harvard's is about six, Stanford's is about four. So just to put into perspective, we are very privileged when we got into YC. And I think what got them interested in our company was the traction we were able to build in a short time, as well as the user volumes that we were doing were really big. And when we got into Y Combinator, I remember one of the conversations, one of the partners came up to me and he says, that, you know, out of most of the companies we've had in the program history, you guys have spent the least amount of money and had the most traction. And I think that to me was really eye-opening because we'd never raised a round of funding like most of the stuff that we were doing i was living at home just staying with my mom internet is the main cost for us and my laptop electricity and then just food we didn't need anything else right you google aws gives you space for free to test out and so the cost for you as a company especially a tech company you can minimize as much as possible and so as long as we had food and got users in like we were happy so when we got into yc stuff really started to change like we a lot of international investors started to come and take an eye and interest on the company what we were building and it really i think elevated my way of thinking about products that was extremely valuable it was kind of hard because i was customer support most people didn't even know that they were talking to me on the phone our company is called nala so our support channel is called mama nala and we had like a whatsapp for business account was the customer support and people would like text all the time and they had no clue they were actually just talking to me and one day I was at the airport and I was flying and this lady came up to me and she's like, yeah, are you that Benjamin guy? I'm like, yeah. She pulls out her phone. She's like, I love Nala. Me and my family use it. And she shows it to me on her phone. I was like, oh, really cool. She's like, oh, by the way, tell your customer support team. They're amazing. They got back to me instantly. I was chatting with them like at 1 a.m. last night. Like, they're so good. You guys are so responsive. I'm like, yeah, cool. I'll let them know. I'm just like, okay, cool. <laughs> Tap yourself on the back over here a little bit. <laughs> There was this lady I spoke to, and I was really inspired by her. I think I spoke to about a week and a half ago. So she grew up in rural Kenya, and she came to the city and was working for a family as a maid in Nairobi. And, you know, all of her income she'd send back. She's a single mother of three kids to her village, right, to take care of the kids. And then this family was moving to the UK and asked her if she could move with them. And so they moved back to the UK. It was a British family that was living in Nairobi for a short term. Moved back to the UK and asked her if she can move with them. And she did. And she was telling me how like 60% of her income is sent back home. And she says, Benjamin, all I'm living for today is just my kid's success. And I think that for me was so moving because there's this hope and opportunity for like better income, better work, you know, and there's this aspirational hope for migration. But remittances are such a beautiful thing. It's about sending money with love because a lot of the reasons why people are sending this money is primarily family dedicated reasons. 
when this lady told me, she literally, I quote you, I'm just living for my three kids. That really moved me because if she's losing 10% of that transaction to some company that's just charging her so much extra money, like that 10% goes a long way on the local side, right? That could be three more meals or something, you know, if it was a hundred bucks. Those are the people that we as a company are inspired to work for and try to figure out how do we help them. Their whole remittance piece is quite a sentimental piece. That is really purpose-driven, you know, and I think that's incredibly powerful. It's a customer story, which I can imagine that's the sort of thing which gets you out of bed every day. Yeah, it's definitely not easy. Some people who might be listening might be wondering, why are remittances so expensive? And there's a few reasons why, right? So for example, there's probably five or six people who got to get paid in one transaction on the digital side. This is excluding the non-digital side. So for example, in the UK, you probably work with the collections partner, whether it's modular finance, whether it's former Wirecard or whoever, Rails Bank, et cetera. You probably work with a KYC partner for like verifying people. So for us, we use Verif, which is the same that TransferWise use. You probably work with an AML partner. For us, we use Comply Advantage. You probably work with you know somebody who's sending the money to the continent, who's doing effects for you there. You have a payout partner on the content who's paying out to the local wallets. And then you have yourself as the interface that people use. And you're also moving your own part of the infrastructure on the local side, right? And so all these people in the $100 transaction, there's five to six people that need to get paid. And so if some of these people want, you know, for example, the KYC partners, if they need to verify digital identity of people in Africa, it's a lot harder for them because digital IDs don't have open APIs that can just plug in and boom, you're connected. No, it's like you physically have to go out there, try to strike a relationship up on the receiver side and try to figure out how do you guys get access to all the Ugandan IDs or the, all the Tanzanian IDs or the Kenyan IDs. So it's my hope and what I'm really driven by is on the receiver side, when things get better, as technology starts to improve on the receiver side and we're trying to help like change that, a lot of this stuff helps take the cost down as it becomes easier with automation and tech, you can do many of these things digitally versus having to query a government database and wait two days to get your results if this person is approved or not. I was fortunate because I went through with you kind of setting up the app and making a payment to a phone in Kenya. And I have to say, like the process of actually going through setting that payment up. I mean, it was essentially the sort of founders of the business were watching me and listening to me. And I found that incredibly just fantastic, you know, again, from a user experience point of view, that people give a damn enough to be there watching customers do this stuff. The fact is you've done it, you know, and I guess you've proved the point. And I find that very, very, very exciting. Just amazing, amazing, amazing. Like, as you say, taking three days for other companies to do it and you're doing it in 11 seconds. They can do it. I'll say that they can do it. I think it's just the opportunity here is on the receiver side, right? It's like some people ask me this question. It's like, okay, why isn't TransferWise doing this? I'm like, okay, when is TransferWise going to have an office in Africa? Next week, next year, in two years, five years. When is, you know, World Remit's trying probably the most for like this Africa stuff. But if you look at the international money transfer space, that's looking at the digital players, TransferWise went the route of building this neobank for Europe. Remitly is launching Passbook, which is like a bank for immigrants in the US. You know, World Remit didn't really do anything. Sendwave started building a receiver side product called Wave.com. And World Remit, for example, and here's a comparable that I think was really fascinating. Sendwave in 2019 was moving about $7.5 billion to five African countries 
It's the highest than any other remittance player in the world. World remit, okay? And get this, this is what's even more interesting. Sendwave raised $15 million, okay? World remit raised $300 million and we're moving less money than Sendwave was to the African continent. And World Remit started in the year 2009. Sendwave started in the year 2015. Just looking at that is where if one is just really diligent about doing something and doing it really well, there's a massive opportunity. And what happened last year at the end, World Remit ended up acquiring Sendwave for $500 million. And so I actually think they got a really good deal on that. But in the industry, if a company just focuses on doing one thing and one thing really well, I think there's still a lot of opportunity to dominate. It's an incredible story. And it's just fascinating to sort of hear the process that you've been through in order to get to where you've got to. We're actually running out of time. So I just wanted to say a massive thank you for joining us today. It's been really, really interesting to hear your journey, to hear about Nyala. So thank you very much. Thank you, David and Dharmesh. It's a pleasure. And, you know, and if there's somebody listening in, you know, highly recommend just, I mean, we're all going to die, right? <laughs> uh, truth be told, we're all going to die if 2020 told us anything. And if there's somebody listening who's wanted to like push it, try to start a business, go for it. But don't do it for the praise, do it for the purpose. Fantastic piece of advice. I've really enjoyed this. Cool. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.